I thought when that music started, I was going to have to turn that chair around. I thought they were going to start swaying and go sister act on us, Betsy. I liked it. I liked it. I thought it was, I thought it was about to get real lively. But uh, that was a great song, choir. Um, you guys really seemed to enjoy that while you were singing it. And uh, that makes us enjoy it all the more also. So thank you guys for the hard work you all put into all of those songs. Um, you guys have a talent that I don't have. And so I appreciate it a lot when, uh, when we all work together. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and open up to the book of Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 4, work our way forward. Just a quick reminder, uh, if, if, you haven't, if you haven't been able to tell already, uh, we spend a, a lot of time uh, in God's Word. Uh, I probably do more reading out of God's Word than you may be used to. And so there is a real benefit to bringing uh, your own Bible to our services. Uh, I know uh, many of you may not bring your Bible to church, but uh, that should be a really common thing for a Christian to do. And so I want to encourage you to bring your Bible to church. And the more that we, the more time we spend in Scripture, we're going we're gonna to get to a point and you're probably going to be eating lunch and you're going to think, man, I wish that I would have written something like that down. I wish I would have starred that or underlined that in the Bible. Because uh, the goal at the end of all of our messages isn't that you leave here and you say anything about me. The goal is that you leave here and you talk about how great God is in his word. If, if you're eating lunch and, and anything positive comes up about me and not God's word, then I think that I've failed. But if, if you go home and your conversation is all about how great God is, then I would consider myself a great success. And so I just want to encourage you, bring your Bible. Don't be afraid to write in it. Some of you may have grown up in homes where you, you don't write in your Bible. Well, bring a notepad or something and you can write in that as well. And so uh, we won't judge those who do write in theirs and we won't judge those who don't write in theirs. But I want to encourage you, bring it and so you can remember it. Now, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll give a quick review. Father, thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you do not just give us um, a Rubik's Cube that we have to figure out, Lord, but you plainly write for us in words that we can understand your will for our lives. You give us purpose. You give us your will. You give us your expectations, and God, I pray that we as a people would be people who worship and obey, and Lord, I pray that we would be people that walk with you, and we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. By way of review, we started out in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and I told you that uh, that this book of Genesis is written by Moses to a people who have just been freed from 400 years of slavery. He starts the book with creation. God is the creator. Remember, the creator gets to make the rules. If you make something, you get to tell people how to use it. Creation, the, the account is written in such a way that it foreshadows a day of rest that's to come. We have days one, two, and three that are fulfilled with days four, five, and six. Then you have an extra day seven that is, that is a, an example of God's rest. God rests on the seventh day, and that foreshadows an eternal rest with God. That's going to come up today in Genesis chapter 5. So you have this idea that there's somebody or something gets to rest with God. Genesis 2, you get into the purpose of man. Man is put into the garden. He's told, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, surely you will die. Then he tells the people, be fruitful and multiply. He tells the people to worship and obey. And so we talked about it's not just enough for Adam and Eve to 
um, be fruitful and multiply, but it's their job to fill the earth with, with kids who will worship and obey God. And we saw in the story of Cain and Abel that worship without obedience, or excuse me, obedience without worship is unacceptable to God. We also see that worship without obedience is worthless to God. And we got on over into the book of uh, uh, Peter and we saw that Cain's actions, the idea of obeying God without a heart of worship is evil in God's sight. And so it's possible for us to do very good things, not do them with the right heart. And that is unacceptable in God's eyes. You have to have the total package of worship and obedience. Then we get into Genesis chapter 4, the very the, the latter part of it. And there's, there's no easy way to, but just to jump in with both feet. We talked about worship and obedience with Cain and Abel. And then when we were in Peter, I told you that the rest of the scriptures, after Cain and Abel, they push you and they compel you to go the way of Cain. Excuse me, to go the way of Abel. The Bible says in Peter, don't go the way of Cain. Following me? And so here in Genesis, you're given a genealogy. You have Adam and Eve who give birth to Cain and Abel. If you remember, when Cain is born, Eve says, wonderful, God has given me a seed. And we said that she is looking for that seed in Genesis 3.15 that's going to crush the head of Satan. So she's given a seed in the form of Cain and Abel. Cain ends up killing Abel. So now she has Cain and she also has another son. And let's read that. Chapter 5, verse 1. I promise you, we'll go back and pick up what we left off in four. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and he blessed them and named them man in the day that they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image and named him Seth. Verse 4, then in the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And so you have this idea that, that you have Cain, which is ungodly, and now you have Seth, which is godly. I seem to have lost what I was going to, uh, no, it's in chapter 4. Forgive me for, for being out of place. Chapter 4, verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. So you have Cain, who when Eve has Cain, she says, great, God has given me a seed. And so she's, she's possibly looking to Cain to be the seed who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Then she has Abel also. Abel would also be a seed who she may be looking to to crush the head of Satan. Well, in, in due time, Cain kills Abel. And she realizes that now Abel's dead. Abel is no longer a potential head crusher because he's not alive. Cain, she realizes, is also not a potential head crusher because now Cain is a murderer. So now she has Seth and she says, God has appointed another offspring in place of Abel. The other translation is God has appointed me another seed in the place of Abel. And so she recognizes that this Seth could be a potential head crusher of Satan. So now the scripture tells you he's going to give you a genealogy in chapter 4, verse 17. I know we're skipping around a lot, but it's going to, we're going to iron this thing out. Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And so you have 
Adam and Eve at the top, right? All of our family trees start with Adam and Eve. You have Adam and Eve, and then you have two genealogies. One is Cain, and the scriptures tell you, don't go the way of Cain. And then you have a line of Seth. If you were to get into the genealogies and read them in verse 23 of chapter 4, this is part of Cain's genealogy. It says, Lamech said to his wives, uh, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. And so when you get going farther down the line of Cain, you find out that Cain has ruthless murderers as part of his genealogy. If you were to follow the line of Seth, you see that after Seth was born in verse 26 to Seth, him also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so in scripture, you've got these genealogies that may be boring, but you see you have Adam and Eve at the top and then you have the the line of Cain, which you're told don't go this way, and you have the line of Seth. People call on the name of the Lord in Seth's line, and people are murdering in Cain's line. And so you have two ways in Scripture that you can go. And you're told in the rest of Scripture, go the way of Abel. Follow Seth's line. So that's the end of chapter 4. Now we get into chapter 5 in the genealogy. I told you in closing or during the end of the invitation last week that there's something different about this genealogy than all of the other genealogies in scripture. And it may not be profound, but hopefully you looked. And before I tell you what it is, there may be more than one thing. And so it could be that you found something different and you're right. But what I'm after here is in Genesis chapter five, verse seven, then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14, so all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Verse 17, all the days of Mehalel were 890 years, And he died. And so what you find in Genesis chapter 2 is that God tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Lest you do, you'll surely die. And what do they do? They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and nothing happens to them. They leave the garden, but this promise of death doesn't come on them. You get to Genesis chapter 5, and the if you get into it and you follow the rhyme and the meter of Genesis chapter 5, it's, and he died, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. And you have seven or eight generations, and what happens to them all? They die, they die, they die. And it's just this chapter of death. But you keep reading, and you get down to Genesis chapter 5, verse 23. And so you've been following this course. Adam dies, Seth dies, Enosh dies. All of, all of their sons, all of their grandsons, they all die. Verse 23 says, So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And so what in the world is this about Enoch in the middle of chapter 5? You have God telling the people that he wants them to worship and obey. You have God tells the people if they eat from the tree, they'll die. You also have in Genesis chapter 1 a promise of rest for somebody. And so what happens to Enoch? Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. If you were, don't go there, if you were to go to Hebrews chapter 11, you would learn that Enoch was was taken. He didn't die. In the same way that Elijah didn't die, Enoch didn't die. 
The scripture says he walked with God and he was not. He didn't die for God took him. So you have death, 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 death. And the question would be, how do you escape death? It's coming to us all. And the answer is right here. You walk with God. Enoch is the first person that we see escaping death. And the only thing you're given is that he walked with God. If you were to go to chapter 5, verse 23, that's uh, the one we just went to. If you were to go to chapter 6, verse 9, you would read about Noah. This is chapter 6, verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Genesis 17 You pick up a guy named Abraham. So, people that are approved of God have this characteristic. They walk with God. This is what God expects out of Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So, what does God expect of his followers? He expects his followers to walk with him. He doesn't say, Noah asked Jesus into his heart at a revival 60 years ago. He says, Noah walked with God. He doesn't say that Enoch got baptized as a child in a Baptist church. He says, Enoch walked with God. He doesn't say, Abraham, I want you to do, I want you to walk forward during the end of a service and I want you to ask Jesus into your heart and then you'll be okay. No, God expects of his followers for them to walk with God. You see what's going on here? There's a theme here that you get in Genesis chapter five and it comes in seed form, but God never wants a one time deal from his people and then that's it. You see, when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament, when it paints a picture of somebody who's been saved, it's not somebody who did something once in the past tense. It's somebody who is continuing to do something throughout their life. You following me? Jesus never applauds the Pharisees for something they did when they were babies. He criticized them for what they're doing now. And so salvation I want you to see is something that you continue to work out with fear and trembling your whole life. Now, if you don't believe me, listen to this. You have James and John, the first disciples. What does Jesus tell them? Follow me, walk with me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Then you come to Matthew in the scriptures. Matthew is a tax collector. And what does he say to Matthew? Follow me. He doesn't tell these guys just to do one thing. Another guy comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. What does he tell him? Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And what does the guy do? He goes away. He doesn't follow Jesus because the cost was too high. You have the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler says, Father, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I've kept them all since I was a child. Jesus says, sell everything you have and follow me. And it says that the rich man went away sad because he had many possessions. And so you have people in scripture who who they say, how do we get saved? What do we do have to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, each time, follow me. 
And some do, and some don't. Some start the journey, Judas, and they fall away because their heart's not in it. Then what does Jesus say? Jesus says, lest any man come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Gang, if you wonder about your salvation, look at your life and ask yourself, do I follow God? You may have started out following God, and you may not be following him now. If you start out following God, if you got saved at that revival and things started out great, and you were walking with God, but you get to a certain point, and God says, come on, let's go, and you say, mm, I'm staying right here. God's still walking, and you may not be walking with him anymore. There's a church in Revelation that has this problem. Revelation chapter 3, you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. It's the church at Sardis. Listen to what God says to the church at Sardis. To the angel, this is chapter 3 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, listen to this, you started out well, but if you don't wake up and repent now, I'll come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come. Verse 4, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will what? They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes thus will be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Listen to me, gang. The, the gate to salvation is faith. You've been saved by grace through faith. That is a fact. But the proof, the proof that you've been saved by faith is that your life is characterized by walking with God. If we were to interview your colleagues at work, would they say, would they describe you like Noah was described? Are you blameless? Are you righteous? Do you walk with God? Or are you just like everybody else? What would your colleagues say about you? What would your extended family say about you? This is the gauge of your spiritual walk here. Not what would you say about you, but what would your wife say about you? And this is incredibly scary. I grew up with a guy who was a youth leader, was one of my youth leaders. I looked up to this guy like you wouldn't believe. I thought that he was a, a, a dynamic Christian. And then a couple years ago, 10 years ago or so, what does he do? He leaves his wife. Walks away from the things of the faith. And I think, hmm, I wonder about him because he's not walking with God anymore. And then I talk to his wife and she says that any time that it would come down to finances and she would encourage their family to tithe, he never wanted to tithe. You see, he did the right things externally. But when it came to internal things, he wasn't walking with the Lord at, at all. See, he... He did all of the church things, 
But when it came down to things that nobody could see, he didn't want to do them with the right heart. So he was very much like Cain and going the way of Cain and not like Abel living a life of worship and obedience. And now where is he? Nowhere to be found. He's not a picture of a guy who's walking with the Lord. Okay? You want to be found faithful at the end. The, the, one of the purposes of the church, I believe one of my purposes as your pastor, is to get you to the finish line. I want to walk with you through life, encouraging you and, and, and teaching you some things that I can. And I want to get you to the end of your life still walking with God. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do because this life is so hard. But anyways, that was a, a small point I wanted to make out of Genesis chapter 3, that, or Genesis chapter 5, is that if you want to escape death, if you want to be someone who enters into the rest of God, you have to be a person who is characterized by walking with God. Now we go on, Genesis chapter 6. Let me finish off in 5. 5.29 says this. Now he, this is Lamech. Lamech lived, this is 28, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1, right? The, the earth is cursed, it's bearing thorns and thistles, and Lamech has a son, and he knows that God has promised a rest to somebody, and Lamech says, this, my boy, is going to give us rest. I was just toying around with some of my retirement accounts, and I was looking at the pros and cons of some of them, and one of them I can get my hands on when I'm 65, and the other one I can get my hands on when I'm 59 and a half. And I was thinking, boy, uh, I, I remember when we had that course here, that choir that uh, came from the Bertie High School, the course teacher uh, asked Marsha, she said, Marsha, or excuse me, he said, Marsha, give me some advice. You were so great at everything that you did at the school. You're a legend. Tell me, give me some advice in 30 seconds. And Marsha looks at him and says, retirement is awesome. And I think, I think about this guy named Lamech. Listen, these guys are living 930 years. If you lived 930 years as a farmer with no mechanized machinery and you were plowing everything by hand and every weed that was picked, you picked by hand, you couldn't retire till 849 and a half years. 800 years of farming. My goodness. You think it's tough now. You think you're worn out at 60, 65, 800 years. These folks are longing for rest. So, heck, yeah, I'm going to walk with God because I don't want to be I don't want to be picking tomatoes for 930 years just so I can live. I don't want to live through 930 winters. I want to do like Enoch did. And I want to walk with God so he can take me and I can get into his eternal rest. You see, we we probably don't value rest as much as we should because we've. We've, we get other people to do the things that we don't want to do. For crying out loud, you don't even have to wash your own clothes if you don't want to. You can send them to the laundromat. Here we go. Genesis chapter 6. So that's all we have. That's all the background. And now you get into the flood. Now, so far, there's a lot of things that have happened in Scripture. You have God acting graceful, graceful, graceful. Let me give you a few ways that God has been graceful thus far. If you were to read Genesis 1 through 5, you would think, okay, this God character may be a little bit of a pushover. He may not be 
as stern as you could think he was. Remember, they're, they're in the garden and they sin and they don't die right away. Then what else happens? They're hiding from God and God clothes them because they're naked. So God doesn't kill them right away. He clothes them. Then he curses Satan and he gives you a glimpse that he's going to deal with his sin problem. This is all grace. He doesn't curse the first couple. Remember, he curses the ground. He curses Satan. So you have like five or six acts of grace that have happened so far. When Cain sins, Cain goes to the Lord and he starts crying. And he says, God, your punishment is too much for me. It's, I'm unable to bear it. And so what does God do? He puts a mark on Cain so that nobody messes with him. Right? So you've got all these acts of grace, acts of grace, acts of grace. And so now if you were to put them on a scale, you would have grace way outweighing God's judgment. But then you get to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 5 give you the answer to why God sent the flood. We'll talk more about that on Wednesday night. Then in verse 6 of chapter 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And so there's a time when the earth is corrupt. God looks on the earth and he says, I'm sorry that I even made it. But he finds Noah, who walks with God, and when God is about to send a global flood, who escapes the wrath of God? Noah, because he was righteous and walked with God. He didn't do something a long time ago in his life, and he rested in that, but he continually walked with God. Now, go over to chapter 6, verse 18. He says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And so here's the story. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you guys know the story. You have a guy named Noah. God comes to him and he says, man shall be no more. His days shall be 120 years. And so in 120 years, by the way, that doesn't mean that man is only going to live 120 years. That means from this point forward, man's only going to live 120 years before he sends the flood. And so Noah, I want you to make an ark. And he gives them dimensions for the ark. And so Noah and his family, possibly others helped him, they make the ark. It's time to get on the ark. Noah, his three sons, and their daughters get on the ark. So eight people get onto the ark, and then it begins to rain. And one of the problems that I have with Noah's Ark is that we tell this story to our kids before we put them to bed. Noah's Ark is a story that when you come to it in Scripture, you shouldn't really think, oh, that's sweet. You should be reading through Scripture. Okay, God is graceful. God is full of love, loving kindness, and all of these things. And then you should get to Genesis chapter 6, and it should be, ah! He killed everybody. We watch the news. Five, six years ago, there was a lady who drowned all of her children in a bathtub. We read that story in the news and we think the electric chair is too generous for a lady like that. She doesn't even deserve that. And we're horrified by watching the news and we cut it off because we don't even want to hear how wicked people are. But here you have God drowns everyone on the earth except for eight people. Because they're wicked 
and they're full of sin. And so you should get to Genesis chapter 6. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, you should be weighed down with God's grace. And then Genesis chapter 6 is the 6 through 9 is the judgment of God. And you get judgment and grace balanced out. You see, God doesn't always issue grace, 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 grace. There is a day coming where you will be called to account for everything. And when the judgment of God begins, there is nothing that you can do to escape it. God's grace, the book of Romans says, and his patience is meant to bring you to repentance. And so if you're here now and you may think, I've been getting away with a lot and I'm going to keep on getting away with it. God tells us that his patience and his grace is a means to bring you to repentance. And so just know that judgment is coming. Second Peter tells us that the earth is reserved for fire. And in the same way that people told Noah, there's not going to be a flood. There will be scoffers who tell you, Jesus isn't coming back. He's not going to judge you for the things that you're doing. But Second Peter says that the earth and everything in it is reserved for fire. And God is, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, even the elements of the earth will be consumed with fire. And so don't think for a second because God has been graceful and overlooked things in your life that you may continue to get away with it. When you step into the judgment, it's too late. Just like when the door of the ark shut, it was too late for everybody. Now listen to the flood. We read through the flood. We read through two animals on it. What would a flood look like? You guys have have lived through a local flood that all things considered, don't let me belittle it because a lot was lost in the flood, but all things considered, it was very minimal compared to the flood that was here. This says that the highest mountain was covered by 20 feet. Now, water flooded some houses here in Windsor, but the highest mountain, the highest water tower wasn't covered by 20 feet. What does a global flood look like? Well, when it begins to rain, people think, okay, it's raining. And then it rains some more. And you start to get water in your house. And you think, okay, maybe this is a little more serious. Then the first floor of your house is flooded. And so you've already taken all your valuables from the first floor up to the second floor. Now you're on the second floor and water is coming up the stairs And now you're ankle deep in water on the second floor. And so now, forget about your things. I'm just trying to stay dry myself. So you get you and you get your family and you climb up on the roof. And it's still raining. And so now you and all of your neighbors are on your roof. And it's still coming up. Now you're on your roof and you're ankle deep in water. There's a couple tall trees in town. So you grab your family. You swim over to the tall trees. And you try to to stay out of the water. Well, it's still raining. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says the floodgates of heaven were opened and the fountains of the deep were opened also. There's another place that the rain, I think you got normal rain also. So you have three different places that rain is coming from and the water is coming up fast. And so now you're in the tall trees and water is, is coming up quickly. And so there's a mountain off in the distance. So you grab your family and you swim to the mountain. The only problem is, is everybody else in town is trying to stay on the mountain also. Do you think that's a pretty sight when everybody's trying to survive on the top of one mountain and the water is still rising? You guys saw what a train wreck it was in New Orleans when everybody was in the Superdome. 
We're no better than those folks when we're trying to stay alive. And so now the water's still rising. And now there's not even the tops of the mountain are visible. So maybe you grab something to float on. Maybe there's a log that floats by. And so you get your family and you, you get your kids to hang on to the log. Well, now 40 days later, the log is waterlogged. There was water on the earth for over 150 days. We don't know. I'm not even talking about big waves or anything like that. I'm just talking about just water on the earth. Maybe you're a good swimmer, but after a couple days, you can no longer stay swimming anymore. And so what happens? Maybe one or two of your children aren't good swimmers, and so they drift away and they drown. Maybe your wife isn't as good of a swimmer as you, and she drifts away and she drowns. And then it's just you, and you're swimming out in the middle of everything, and you can't swim anymore because you're exhausted. And so you drowned also. If you were to interview people... The two most treacherous ways for people to die, the two ways of dying that people are most afraid of is being burned up in fire and drowning. God, in his righteous judgment, drowned everyone on the earth except for eight people because of sin. God also, after Christ returns, is going to burn up the whole world with fire because of sin. And the only way to escape this judgment is to walk with God. And so here you have Noah that escapes the flood. I hope you see how scary this flood is. I mean, we've been putting our kids to bed with the flood forever, but we've never really thought about what a global flood would look like and people dying by the masses by drowning. So Genesis chapter 6, excuse me, Genesis chapter 8 verse 20. You have the whole world is destroyed with a flood. They're on the ark over 150 days. We can talk more specifics on Wednesday. Then it says, chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So here you have this guy named Noah. In the beginning, he's characterized by being blameless and righteous and walking with God. God comes to Noah, says, do something crazy. Build an ark big enough to fit all the animals of the earth on, two of all the animals. And so he does it. He obeys. He's blameless. He's righteous. He walks with God and he obeys by building an ark. And then he gets off the ark. And what does he do? He begins to worship once he gets off the ark. All of these things about Noah's life are given to us so that we can see in seed form what our lives are supposed to look like. I'm not telling you to go home and convince your wife that you need to build a boat. But what I'm saying is that you should be characterized by being blameless, by being righteous, by walking with God, by obeying God, and by worshiping God. All of these five characteristics are things that should be characteristic of each of us in this room also. And so you get the idea also in uh, in chapter um, earlier in chapter 8 that God's going to make a covenant. We'll talk more about covenants next week. Lastly, chapter 9, verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So what's just happened is you've got the whole flood thing has just taken place. They get off the ark. Noah begins to worship God. And then God says he blesses Noah and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, God destroyed the earth because of sin, right? His original command to man was to be fruitful and multiply, worship and obey. They don't do that. 
They, they fall into sin. Things are treacherous. So he pushes the reset button and he starts over with eight people. And then when those eight people get off the boat, he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. And I told you, it's not just enough to be fruitful and multiply, but you have to fill the earth with worshipers, right? You're only doing a good job if you're filling the earth with worshipers of God. And so he tells them, redo, try again, fill the earth, multiply it with worshipers. And then you'll come next week. We'll get into, uh, we'll cover through chapter 11 and we'll talk about covenants. We'll talk about Abraham. And there's a big problem that happens in chapter 11. I read Cain and Abel when I started reading scripture. It never made sense. I read the Tower of Babel and I thought, really, there's got to be more to the story than that. Uh, hopefully after next week, Babel will make more sense and we'll tie together this idea of what in the world is a covenant and why does it matter to me? Who, who cares about covenants? But they're incredibly important in Scripture. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, then we'll have our invitation. Father, I pray that each of us would be followers of you. Lord, I pray that we would never belittle what it takes to enter into your rest. And Lord, I also pray on the same hand that we would never... We would never add things to what it takes to enter your rest, but I pray that we would be balanced in our approach. God, I pray that we would all be characterized as people who walk with you, who are righteous, who are blameless, who worship you and obey you. And so, God, help us to be those people. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures that you're given us, that you've given us. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who balances judgment and grace. And God, I pray that we would never take your grace as a sign of weakness, but we would always know that when your wrath is kindled, you judge and you judge completely. And so God, if there's anyone here who has never uh, trusted you to forgive them of their sins, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they cast themselves on your mercies. They ask your son, Jesus Christ, to forgive them of their sins, and then they can be on a path walking with God to avoid your judgment. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you guys all for coming. I uh, enjoyed seeing you guys this week. I hope that you all have a blessed week. Hope that it doesn't snow this Tuesday or Wednesday. We can keep life cruising along like it has. Um, hopefully, uh, you'll have a little bit of interest in coming on Wednesday nights. One of the things that we're going to talk about real soon is um, we talked about walking with God this morning. But if we're saved by faith and there's no name under the heavens which a man can be saved other than Jesus, what did Adam and Eve what did Noah, what did Abraham, what did those guys have to believe in order to be saved? Good question if you've never wondered it before. But uh, prior to Jesus, what do you put your faith in to be saved? Wednesday night. Brother Bill, would you close us in prayer? Oh, heaven, Father, we thank you for this day.